um, <coughs> ministers, distinguished guests, members of the IPS family, I would like to begin by drawing your attention to the water on your table. Um, for the first time in IPS history, IPS is not giving us bottled water. But instead, let's, let's congratulate IPS. I, I've been campaigning against bottled water, so this really makes me happy. I would like to begin by thanking Janadas and the IPS family for giving me the honour of moderating this panel. It is a privilege which no money can buy. Professor Huang Kang-hu is my Confucius, and I'm one of his many disciples. I had the honour of serving George Hill three times when he was Minister for Information, Communication and the Arts, Minister for Trade and Industry, and Minister for Foreign Affairs. He was an inspiring and caring boss. The topic of this panel is Singapore and the world. I hope Janadas will not be angry with me if I tell him that I do not like the script he offered as a guide to this panel. I would respectfully point out that the United States and China are very important countries, but they don't represent the world. The world is much larger than the United States and China. To take one example, the largest economy in the world is neither that of the United States or China, but the European Union. And EU minus UK would still be the largest economy in the world. So, in place of the IPS narrative, I want to offer you this morning my list of the 10 most important developments in the world in 2018. So I begin. Number one, Singapore's place in the world. Singapore's image, brand equity, and soft power rose to an unprecedented height last year. This was due to our successful hosting of the Trump Kim Summit, our successful chairing of ASEAN, and to the Hollywood blockbuster Crazy Rich Asians. Number two, ASEAN successful year. ASEAN had a successful year in 2018. It managed to maintain its unity, neutrality and centrality. ASEAN was adroit in managing its relations with the great powers. For example, ASEAN carried out joint military, joint naval exercises with China last year and will do the same with the United States this year. Under the chairmanship of Singapore, ASEAN launched new initiatives last year in smart cities, in e-commerce, and in cybersecurity. Number three, the TPP did not die. When President Trump pulled the United States out of TPP, many people thought that the TPP would die. 
However, the remaining 11 members of TPP didn't let that happen. They made some modifications and the comprehensive or progressive TPP has not only survived, it's come into force. The CPTPP is open to accession by other countries, including by the United Kingdom post-Brexit. The moral of this story is that the United States is important, but it is not indispensable. Number four. The Paris Agreement is alive and well. In a similar way, when the United States announced that it was pulling out of the Paris Agreement on climate change, some people wondered whether the Paris Agreement would survive. The happy news is that no other country has followed the United States out of the Paris Agreement. Even in the case of the United States, some of the states like California, some of the cities like New York City, and many of the leading corporations have said they will honour the pledges made by President Obama. The contracting party held their 24th meeting in Poland recently, and, and they succeeded in adopting what has, been, what has come to be called the Katowice Rubuk. This is to help in the implementation of the Paris Agreement. Development number five, war or peace on the Korean Peninsula. In 2016 and 2017, there was a danger of a nuclear war between the United States and North Korea. North Korea had acquired the capacity to strike the US mainland with nuclear weapons. This was considered by the United States as an unacceptable threat to its security. Then, miraculously, in June last year, President Trump and Chairman Kim had a historic summit in Singapore. They signed a joint communique containing four points. The officials are having difficulties implementing that communique. And the two leaders have agreed to meet late next month, probably in Vietnam. The question that I would like to ask all of you is, what does Chairman Kim want? Is he a Teng Xiaoping who wants to open up the North Korean economy? Or is he simply deceiving the whole world? Number six, free trade versus protectionism. The conventional wisdom is that free trade is a force of good. And thinkers from Adam Smith down to the present generation hold this view. And this theory is supported by practice. Many of the countries in Asia have traded themselves out of poverty. The same is true of globalization. There is, however, a counter-revolution in the world. And a counter-revolutionary oppose free trade 
and globalization. They champion economic nationalism and protectionism. The happy news I want to share with you this morning is that in 2018, the counter-revolutionary did not prevail. It is, however, important for us here in Asia to waste no time and to conclude our 16-country regional comprehensive economic partnership. Number seven, multilateralism is at risk. The world has grown increasingly interdependent and interconnected. Trade, travel, technology, globalization have changed forever the nature of the world we live in. Some of our most important challenges, such as global warming and climate change, the mass extinction of the species, the warming and acidification of the oceans, mass migration, terrorism, can only be resolved through international cooperation and through multilateral institutions. In parts of the West, we have seen the rise of right-wing populists who denounce multilateralism and multilateral institutions. They wish to destroy institutions such as WTO and UNESCO. And my message to you is, we must not let them prevail. The rule-based international order and the multilateral institution that underpin it are good for the world and crucial for small countries like Singapore. At the same time, we must not allow the growing inequalities in our society to produce the phenomenon of the angry voter. Number eight, messy Middle East. The Middle East has not known peace for 70 years. Our dream, our dream that there could be a just peace between Israel and the Palestinians has vanished in the desert air. The cleavage between Sunnis and Shias has become violent and we see this in the proxy wars in Syria and Yemen. The rivalry between Saudi Arabia, the most important Sunni power, and Iran, the most important Shiite power, has become toxic. But I'm happy to tell you this morning that unlike the situation in some of our neighboring countries, our Sunnis and Shias live at peace with one another. And our Shias have the right to worship in their own mosque in Singapore. To add to the complication, four Arab countries, namely Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates, have imposed a blockade on Qatar. And incidentally, all five of them are Sunni countries. In the meantime, ISIS has lost much of its territory in Syria, but it is not dead. It has transformed itself into an international force. And the ISIS franchise in Southeast Asia is alive and very powerful, as we saw 
in the capture of Marawi in the Philippines. Number eight. Number nine, sorry. Europe without the UK. The United Kingdom is the first country to ask to leave the, United, the, Euro, the European Union. Sorry, The departure of the UK is a loss to the European Union, but it is also a loss to the United Kingdom. The two sides have negotiated a withdrawal agreement or divorce agreement, but it has not yet been approved. And it is only after this agreement has been approved that the two sides will negotiate a trade ag agreement to govern their future relations post-2019. The British Parliament on 19 January this year rejected the divorce agreement. It is unlikely that Prime Minister May will hold a second referendum. So we may be looking at a prospect of the United Kingdom leaving the EU on 29 March this year with no agreement. This will have serious repercussions for the UK and for EU, but also for us in Asia, because we are heavily invested in the United Kingdom. The 10 and last development, the US and China. The most important development in 2018 was the paradigm change in the nature of the US-China relations. The U.S. intellectual consensus on China has changed. The Americans now believe that the era of cooperation with China is over and the two countries have entered a new era of competition. The competition is not just in trade, also in technology, in military power and in global influence. On the 4th of October last year, the Vice President of the United States made a policy speech on China at the Hudson Institute in Washington. It was a fierce, fierce attack on China. If that speech represents the Trump administration policy of China, then clearly we're entering a new era. I don't know what is the appropriate word to call this new era, and I would ask Gangu and George whether it's it containment, is it Cold War? Or to borrow a word from Bahasa Indonesia, is it Konfrontasi? How would you describe this relationship? So my, my questions for Ganghu and Giorgio are, first, how would they describe the current relationship between China and the United States? Second, has the rise of China created fear in the United States? in the same way as 2,500 years ago, the rise of Athens instilled fear in Sparta, which made war inevitable. And my third question to my two distinguished panelists is, are the United States and China destined for war? It now gives me great pleasure to invite the 88-year-old sage of Singapore, Professor Wang Gangwu, to enlighten us. Great program every year about Singapore perspectives. You've just heard from Professor Ko. I was expecting to follow uh, Mr. Giorgio, but I shall do my best to fill in a 
gap in what I see as a, the position between Singapore and the world is the region. I know there'll be a section on the region, but I want to take out the point that a region is part of the world. The world is in fact full of regions. And although we talk about the world in general, the world is pretty abstract unless you pin it down a little bit more to where you are located. And to my mind, Singapore's place in the world depends so much on its place in the region. So I want to talk, concentrate on Singapore's region. It's a region that is gaining in importance, in part because there has been a general shift and recognition that it is in the heart of a new dynamic economic region that has been called today the Indo-Pacific region. Now, this is, of course, nothing new. The Indo-Pacific has always been there, two oceans in which Singapore's region has been at the heart of it right from the beginning. And in the days when the region's major players were on the Indian Ocean side, centered on India, on the Western Pacific side, centered on China, this region, we now call it Southeast Asia, it didn't have a name before, uh, was central to that region for thousands of years. That is not new. In other words, there's something very fundamental about the regional position of Singapore in the region and the region in the larger old world of the Eurasian uh, mass continent, landmass. It is in that context that I want to talk about Singapore's region. Of course, the context is very clear today. We have a global power, the United States, and a regional power, China. There are others, but China is the most significant regional power that we face today. So between a global power and a regional power, I think we have enough expertise this morning and this afternoon to look at the more, the broader global scene. But for the regional power, China at the moment is the focus of attention. And I think it is right for us to spend a bit more time on that. And China very much has been a dominant power in this region from very early on. So how China sees the region seems to me something that we need to look at very closely. And I believe that if you look at the whole history of China's attitudes towards and policies towards its south, where the, our region is, is something of tremendous importance that we understand properly. China, of course, we all know the, the original China was way, way far away from this region, mainly in the Yellow River Delta, Yellow River uh, northern plains of uh, what is now called China, and uh, was there for hundreds of years before it looked south. And for a long time, its perception of the south was simply of the hundred year, the southern southwestern uh, peoples of uh, the southwest, but they had very little to do with each other for a long time. It was not until about 2,000 years ago that that part of China began to move south and took over some parts of what is now southeastern China, or what we normally call South China. And China began to emerge on the edge of the South China Sea. And that was only 2,000 years ago. But by that time, 
the people in Southeast Asia had already formulated its own identity and personality relating to the western part of uh, the region in the Indian Ocean and of course had its very deep commercial links already with the Western Pacific, including, of course, the southern coast of China. That's the background. That China moved south largely because the north was being invaded again and again by various tribal peoples from the north, northeastern, northwestern uh, parts of the landmass of Eurasia and forcing the people of China originally in the Yellow River area, to move south. And they came down gradually over the centuries until southern China became also China in the south. In that context, China had moved southwards to what we now call South China. But it was not until the 10th century that there was such a thing as China in the south. And the 10th century was very interesting because by that time, the north had been basically taken over by northern peoples from the steppes of the northern uh, t central, central Asian landmass, and the Han Chinese moved more and more to the south and intermingled with the original indigenous inhabitants of the, the Yue people in the south to form a, a new kind of society. And because they were isolated and there were divisions, well, I won't go into that, the, uh, the South was, was mainly defending themselves from being conquered from the North for a long time, for about 200 years, during which time a little kingdom, today we would normally associate it with the Song Empire, but actually it was a Song Kingdom, the Southern Song, for about 150 years was all that was left of the original China, because much of North China had already been taken over by other peoples. But even then, the story did not end. What really was intriguing is that China was eventually integrated into one China by, again, from the North, by the Mongols. We often forget the Mongols uh, were active everywhere. We, we, we notice that they spread right across into Europe and uh, the Middle East and the Mediterranean. But of course, its most important and most successful empire was under Kublai Khan in, in Yuan China. But what is significant about Yuan China, Mongol China, was that it integrated all of China again for the first time in hundreds of years. And by that integration, it pulled the southern Chinese back into the northern ambit, so to speak. The north became the dominant feature of China's history for the next six or seven hundred years. Uh, where Singapore is concerned, it, uh, it's probably not entirely a coincidence that we first heard of Tamasic at the time when the Mongol Empire was at its peak in China. It was when Kublai Khan, in fact, had conquered all of China that we first hear of the island called Tamasic. But anyway, Mongol power drew the southern Chinese back into the northern ambit, and from that time onwards, down to the 19th century, the southern peoples in China, in the China of the south, were struggling to keep up their economic and other relations with the region in the south, that is Southeast Asia, by trading, often against imperial edicts, 
against imperial policy, but nevertheless, the trading went on, actively involving numerous peoples, the Arabs, the Indians, the Southeast Asians, and eventually the Europeans, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, British, eventually the French and the Americans. So that was a period where the South in China, China's South, was deeply involved in the commercial relations of Southeast Asia and the rest of the region. And that was a time, however, where the political authority, the center, was always up in the north, and the south was constrained by the north not to be too active. And that remained so until the 19th century at the cost of China's own independence. And they lost, in fact, lost control of their own civilizational progress by the end of the 19th century. In the 20th century, we saw two revolutions which totally transformed that China. But that transformation itself deserves our, our special attention because those two revolutions changed the nature, the structure of Chinese society in some very profound ways. For one thing, what South China represented for all those centuries of northern dominance was a group of people who were primarily entrepreneurial, commercial, technically oriented, who were very enterprising and were trying to create a new economic environment for themselves, while at the same time being politically dominated by the forces in the north. But this tension between northern political and military power and southern entrepreneurial and technical uh, uh, expertise remained throughout that whole period down to the end of the 19th century. But the 19th century, the opening of China, gave the southern Chinese the southern Chinese entrepreneurs in particular, but also their te te technical and scientific uh, talents down in the south, an opportunity to rise above their positions, the lower positions that they were allocated through the centuries. That transformation, fundamental transformation in Chinese society has now created a new China. And the two revolutions that, that occurred, the ones in 1911 and 1949, totally transformed that structure. It was a structure in which the literati, together with the military and the peasantry, formed the basis of that society. But after the two revolutions, what had happened was, fundamentally, the technologists, scientists, and entrepreneurs rose in, in, in their positions in the society, became invaluable to the economic development and, progress, and the progressive development of the, of the country. And the literati took another form, in the form of the party, a new concept, a new kind of organization drawn from the Western experience and Western political structures, a party in which a new literati, together with the military, formed the, the ruling elite. But balancing that was a emerging power of the scientific, technological, and enterprising entrepreneurial uh, sections of society forming a, a balance in the, in the structure. This is new to China. But this, of course, really took shape under the reforms of Deng Xiaoping. When Deng Xiaoping reformed China, he basically created a new balance in which the party elite and military was balanced by the scientific technological entrepreneurs of the south, of southern origins. And that balance remains, I think, what we look at today in China's relations with our region in the South. Southeast Asia, of course, also underwent fantastic changes. As you know, after the imperial period, 
the period of decolonization, the nation states, a, a group of sovereign states that are now united together in their effort to defend the region against the, the, the rivalries of major powers outside the region, a task still very much work in progress. Now, in that context, let me just, just look at China's position vis-a-vis this new region, the region in which Singapore is the heart of. The China's south is more open than ever before, and Beijing's leaders remain in strict control, but they have discovered new ways to move forward. And this has led to one of the country's biggest ideas, the One Belt, One Road initiative that seeks to create more opportunities for future economic growth. Its key feature is that it covers both the overland and maritime potentials across the whole stretch of the old Eurasian world, where a balanced approach is essential to advance China's long-term interests. The overland Silk Road and the growing dependence on access to maritime ports are two sides of the same vision, whereby China safeguards its national goals in both directions at the same time. Nevertheless, the distinction between the overland belt and the maritime road is important, and the Chinese expect that the challenges facing each half would be different. The overland belt across Eurasia to reach markets in Europe has not been attractive for centuries. What distinguishes China's new approach is that this belt is also reaching southwards to the Indian Ocean. Here, geopolitical advantage is obviously more important and that has induced neighboring states to join the organization for, with that in mind. China's south, the maritime Silk Road, is a different story. It is now central to future e economic development. Keeping the waters secure for China's maritime linkages has never been so vital, never in its own history. For the first time in its history, the south is an existential problem for its national interests. There are at least three dimensions to that changing condition. Firstly, the dynamism in globalization depends a great deal on entrepreneurs and inventive industrialists who are always more active and better appreciated in southern China. Chinese northern leaders claim to understand the need to give them fuller reign to devise the best methods for their initiative to grow, but they are, but they are still too prone to impose tight controls on the slightest provocation. Secondly, the countries to China's south are now sovereign states in an overarching international system and have organized themselves to protect the region. This is not to say that ASEAN is united in everything. It is obvious that its members are seeking unity in several key areas. But the association has come a long way and its members understand how important it is for them to do things together and not allow outside forces to create dangerous and unnecessary divisions. Thirdly, the South China Sea has become a source of tension between the United States and China. We heard that and we'll hear more about that today. The subject now involves countries not bordering the South, uh, not bordering the South China Sea including United States allies like Japan and Australia and some countries of the European Union. As a focal point in the U.S. reaction to China's rise, 
ASEAN members know that it is more crucial than ever to be united. When the Americans redefined their strategic concerns by moving the goalposts from Asia-Pacific to the Indo-Pacific, the decision made Southeast Asia more central and to the competing powers. No one is certain how the threats to peace and prosperity can be eliminated. More mere regular meetings between ASEAN and its partner states may not be enough if either China or the United States insists that ASEAN has to decide which side it supports. China's entrepreneurial classes have to face these factors confronting the Silk Road in, East, in China's south. They know the region and are unlikely to take the unity for ASEAN for granted. They also have to ensure that the, their northern leaders understand the demands of coastal and maritime outreach, as well as the different demands of the economies across ASEAN's land borders. The proposals to connect China's southern province, provinces to the South China Sea, and as well as the Bay of Bengal to Vietnam and so on, Thailand, Myanmar, point to the importance of the land-sea dimensions of the BRI and the measures needed to ensure that both parts of the initiative support each other. Furthermore, there are now millions of settlers of Chinese descent in Southeast Asia who are loyal to their respective nation states. Most people in South China are able to relate to these communities and know how to deal with them with care. But those responsible among the central elites, especially those of northern origins, have not found these localized communities easy to understand. If China hopes that these nationals of Chinese descent would play a positive role in their country's relations with China, it would have to exercise sensitivity to their local interests as well as the interests of the countries where they have made their homes. ASEAN is now being re-envisaged as a strategic zone for all the powers. This is because the economic dynamism centered in the North Atlantic for the past two centuries is moving to this Southeast Asian, Southeast Asian regions of the old world. More recently, the shift from Europe into the, to the Indian Ocean underlines how timely the Belt Road Initiative is and why it is taking advantage of this development to highlight its long-term interests and long-term benefits to a revived old world. Such a move will not be straightforward as the United States reacted by redefining their new strategic interest in the Indo-Pacific. For those in the old world, the Western Pacific and Indian Oceans have always been where all kinds of Eurasian actors were trading for millennia, where the exchange of ideas, cultures, and goods have been conducted under conditions of relative peace. Those historical relationships show how the old world had been interconnected. A fresh review of that history would help the peoples involved to restore the conditions that had ensured that every part of that larger trading zone benefited from the trading relations. The Indo-Pacific, as redefined by hegemonic power on the other side of the Pacific, means that Southeast Asia, as the only region that faces both oceans, will become more critical than ever. Singapore, once part of the commercial zone that connected the two halves of the old Eurasian world, has been transformed into a global node in the Anglo-American order. Given that its location is also central to 
China's future in the South, the city-state would need to find new ways to perform its dual roles, one in a revived Eurasia and the other in a globalized world. It will not be doing that alone. It will not be doing that alone. It will have to, but it will have to devote much of its energies to ensure that fellow members of ASEAN all understand the region's role and will work, continue to work together to avoid being destroyed by big power rivalries. Minister Vivian Balakrishnan, Bhatmati, old friends, young friends, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. 200 years ago, Raffles established Singapore as a trading post for the China trade. In the 19th century, The jewel in the British crown was India, and India's biggest trading partner was China. We are now seeing before us a new China trade, much bigger than the one in the 19th century. Our history profoundly affects who we are, and what our future will be. In the last 40 years, China's growth has been phenomenal, resulting in China impinging on the rest of the world, causing almost an inevitable reaction. If China's GDP per capita, when it reaches half that of the US, its GDP will be twice that of the US. When China's GDP reaches two-thirds of the US, its GDP will be roughly that of the US, EU, and Japan combined. I think it's entirely possible that China's per capita GDP reaches two-thirds of the U.S. So this is the future unfolding before us. And it's creating considerable discomfort in the neighborhood and beyond. In Asia, countries are going back to the history books to try to figure out what China was like in the past. Because in that past lies opportunities and wisdom for the future. It is numbers. But it's not only numbers. China's population will peak at 1.44 billion in 2029, according to Beijing. And India's population will surely overtake, overtake that of China. But it is not just population. It is the fact of China's homogeneity 
with over 90% of its people Han. Believing in the midst of a common ancestry, having common heroes, celebrating common festivals. Of course, there's considerable regional diversity. But the Chinese people, including the Chinese outside China, feel that they belong to one race. And because of that, when China is united, its productivity is awesome. But of course, when it declines, the decline is also awesome. And that explains the long cycles of Chinese history. You take the restoration of China under the Ming, 1368, Zhu Yuanzang, Nanjing. By 1405, the great voyages were launched. Just 37 years. 37 years to consolidate a continental country, to develop industry, to generate the surplus, the technology in so many fields. The fleets had cartographers, astronomers, scientists, soldiers, diplomats, farmers. I mean, they had chicken farms. They grew vegetables. And they had, all over the Indian Ocean, shipyards, because these are wooden ships. They needed repair. In Chirabon, where there is Gunojati, at the base of it, they had a shipyard. And Tantasan told me how the, the Sultan, who owns much of the land there, wants to de redevelop it as a heritage site for the Belt and Road. For there, the ships were repaired all the way to Africa. For those further away, in particular for America, they don't have the history. And when they look at China, they view it very differently. When I met Alison Graham in uh, Beijing a few weeks ago, he said, look, this anti-China mood in America is going to get much worse. As Tommy said, as Sparta once saw a rising Athens. This trial of strength, oscillating between a Cold War and a Cold Peace, will continue for easily another 20 years to come, each testing the other. But America worried, what does a rising China portend? So both sides have publicly said they're preparing for war. A few months ago, the former U.S. Army commander in Europe, Ben Hodges, Lieutenant General, he said war between U.S. and China likely within 15 years. I was in armed forces before. If you must fight within 15 years, and you know that your enemy is getting stronger year by year, you prefer to fight tonight. As Harry Harris often said, be prepared to fight tonight. Of course, war between the US and China, that's madness. But both sides have to prepare for it. 
But this is the single most important relationship shaping our world today, the US-China relations. If it is bungled, all bets are off. All of us will be torn apart as countries, as cities, as companies, as families. <coughs> Happily, unlike the old Soviet Union, China is not a missionary power. China does not see maritime voyages the way Admiral Mahan saw the oceans. I tell my American friends, think about it. Why does every Chinese dynasty rebuild the Great Wall? And many of us are familiar with the strains of the Chinese national anthem, Qi Lai. In that national anthem, recited countlessly, sung countlessly, the Chinese talked about rebuilding a new Great Wall. This is because it is difficult enough organizing the Han people and other nationalities in China. And their foreign policy has always been defensive in character. Every Chinese leader reads and rereads Sun Tzu, the art of war. You have to understand war and you must be prepared for war. But you are a fool to go into war lightly. Because war, once you begin, will exhaust you and lead to consequences you cannot anticipate. If you watch the way China is managing relations with the US now, very careful. And I believe the current trade negotiations are likely to succeed because China will go 80% of the way to meet US demands. Not because they are afraid or generous, but because they know that time is on their side. <coughs> Last weekend, I met a Singapore businessman who goes to China often, has a big business in China. So I asked him, how's China, meaning the economy? He said, bad. In one word, bad. China has been deleveraging, deliberately, giving help only to important sectors which they cannot allow to go down. But the last easing after the global financial crisis created a lot of excesses which they are trying to squeeze out of the system. And they know in every field they are advancing, slowly, feeling their own strength. This rivalry between the US and China will continue until the US is convinced that China's nature is different from that of the US and different from that of the Soviet Union. And it will take time, and China will have to do its part to reassure its neighbors and the other major powers that its nature is different, that its statecraft is principally defensive. And all of us, who are at the intersection between these two great countries to play our part to help bridge the differences. You take the TPP as an example. Tommy talked about it. I was involved in establishing it 
together with Brunei, Chile, and New Zealand many years ago. I remember trying to persuade Shi Guangsheng, China Trade Minister, to join. He said, no, 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 we have already given too much joining the WTO. We can't do this. And then the Americans came in, and under Obama, and they turned it into an anti-China coalition, which I thought was a mistake. Then, by happenstance, Trump became president, and the US removed itself from the TPP. Fortunately, Prime Minister Abe decided to see it through, push it through. I think Singapore, Japan, and other countries should encourage China to join the TPP. But prolong the negotiations. This will encourage, even force the US to come back in. Because if it's the US and the TPP, including China, it'd be a problem for the US. But we must do this artfully, coordinate the negotiations so that they join at the same time. And whatever China is prepared to give to the US, we say, give it to the TPP. Now, intellectual property is the single most important trade issue in the coming years because of digitalization. When Tommy negotiated the free trade agreement between Singapore and the US, IP was a big issue and threatened to derail negotiations. And I remember as trade minister calling a special meeting, and we asked ourselves, what is our own future? And we came to the conclusion that it was also IP. So instead of fighting the US, we went with the US, and today Singapore is a major intellectual property center in all of Asia, to our great advantage. So it is in China's interest to move on IP. And it's in the US interest. And if the TPP includes China and the US, the WTO will have to follow in this wake. And you will have a safer world. Trump thinks that the US enjoys an advantage in bilateralizing relationships. So they they reduce the importance of the WTO, the UN, other international organizations. Imagine one day China inherit, inheriting a bilateralized global system. Now, Imperial China perfected it through the tribute system. And this is almost instinctual for China to bilateralize relationships and to use economics for political purposes. But it is not good for China. And it is not good for the US or any of us for the world to become like that. So moving on the TPP, getting both China and the US in is in fact an important road to a much safer future for all of us. For Singapore, you know, every country, every region is now re-triangulating because of the rise of China. And for Singapore, ASEAN is very important because ASEAN gives us buffer, shelters us from the cold winds of superpower rivalry. And it is enlightened self-interest why Singapore puts ASEAN at the center of its foreign policy. But what drives our future? 
it's not only the external environment. It is who we are inside. You know, Singapore may be a very small city-state, but if you look at our cultural genome, we have a very big genome. Because of Raffles, because of our role in the old China trade, because of our role in the coming China trade. So in us, we have a protein capability to evolve in different directions. So as China becomes more important, we deepen our knowledge of China. India will become the world's biggest economy, second biggest economy sometime later this century. And we will grow our links to India. Indonesia will be the fourth. And Bahasa, which some of us thought had become a relic language in Singapore for the non-Malays, will become important again because of Indonesia. Politically, it's always difficult to manage this diversity in our genome. So the preference is always to simplify it, reduce it, so that we are at the lower homeostasis, as it were. But it would be suicidal. Because it is because of our genome that we have this resilience and this ability to adapt to a range of possible, possible futures. It's our best foolproofing, future-proofing of our economy and of our country. We sometimes get so caught up with the inconvenience, with the quarrels among ourselves, that we say, no, 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 let's reduce the diversity. Last night, Patmati and I had a leisurely stroll along Changi Beach and wanted to show him a monument we erected in 1992, 50th anniversary of the fall of Singapore, to Mark Suk Ching, the killings on Changi Beach. And we deliberately did it in four languages, four official languages, with Japanese at the bottom. Because it's important for the Japanese to know this history too. I was so dismayed to find that that monument had been replaced by one which is purely in English. Now, I understand the reasons why it is convenient, whether it's in Changi Airport or whether it is at our museums, to have one language. This is deliberately reducing our cultural denome because sometimes it creates autoimmune reactions and so on for short-term purposes. It is denying us of a powerful capability, and a precious inheritance from the past, which in fact will secure our future. We cannot avoid, in Singapore, always having debates about race, language, religion, identity. Every link which connects us to China, to India, to Indonesia, to the Middle East, every link is both a plus and creates problems. <coughs> every link is two-way. What connects? is also a method of infiltration. So we have to adjust to all this. The day we decide that it is too tiring to do all this, that day we will shrivel and become inconsequential. 
You know, I go to the Vatican every, five times a year for meetings of the Council for the Economy. At every meeting, interpreters, earphones. The day the church stops using earphones and interpretation, it is no longer the church. The day Singapore decides to reduce its genome so that we become homogenized, that would be a very uninteresting Singapore. And I'm certainly unworthy of a session such as this. Thank you. I thank Prof Huang and uh, George Yeo for their presentations. Um, we have about 20 minutes for the Q&A session. I would like to have the privilege of asking each of the two panelists a question. So I start with you, uh, Gang Hu. Gang Hu, as a historian, do you have any concern that we are seeing what Tusiri said was a trap? in the sense that when an incumbent superpower, Sparta, saw the rise of Athens as a threat to itself, it made war inevitable. Is this scenario applicable to the rise of China and the fear this has engendered in America? And my related question is, we are both friends of Professor Samuel Huntington. In his book, Clash of Civilizations, he had predicted that China and the West will clash but he thought they would clash for civilizational reasons. So could you also comment on that, please? On the Thucydides uh, trap argument that uh, Graham Allison refers to, that uh, Graham Allison refers to so often, I think there are analogies. For example, <coughs> when China was powerful, and recognize the threats of the Xiongnu or the Turks or the Mongols or the Manchus, they did their utmost to prevent these forces from uh, becoming strong enough to destroy China. But the major difference that I sense at this stage is that China, the court of China, was always very confident of its ability to deal with those threats. And although they failed several times to contain those threats and actually was conquered by the, were actually conquered by these invaders, uh, nevertheless they managed to revive themselves each time and reasserted their Chinese identity successfully. So this given the Chinese people over 2,000, 3,000 years considerable confidence in their capacity to revive themselves no matter what the difficulties were. I'm not sure that the Americans at this stage, whether they are like Sparta, when seeing the rise of Athens, have the same confidence in themselves as a, as a relatively new country. They have not been tested in that way. Of course, America has tremendous advantages. It's so far away from everybody else, it has really no threats to the American uh, nation itself. The country is completely without real enemies. And from that point of view, it's actually very hard to understand how the Americans should feel threatened by anybody. So the only way we can interpret the, the American position is not that they are threatened, 
but their hegemony is being threatened. In other words, they see themselves as being the masters of the world, that they are responsible for world peace, prosperity. They are the people who created this new order, and anybody who disturbs that order must be put down. I mean, this is the other side of the interpretation. So that has nothing to do with Sparta and Athens. That's a completely separate kind of uh, analysis. That's how I see it. Huntington? Oh. As for Huntington, I have always disagreed with yeah. Huntington on the use of the word civilizations. I always thought the clash was always between political units, powers, empires, and so on. They may use civilization as an excuse for fighting for whatever interests they may represent, but it is not civilizations that clash. It are those people who use civilizations or find it useful, find civilizations useful to make an excuse or give a reason for uh, rejecting or, or trying to terminate or uh, destroy uh, a rival civilization or rival power that represents a different civilization. So ultimately that's about political power. Civilizations in themselves, I personally take the view that civilizations affect one another always positively. In other words, people learn from each other's civilizations. In fact, the, the human race has uh, grown wise and relatively prosperous over the centuries and made progress because we have always been relatively open. Not everybody is open, but those who are open learn the most and those who are open and willing to learn become eventually more successful and more progressive than others. Thank you. Um, George, um, I hope you don't mind if I pick a small quarrel with you. Uh, um, if you read today's Straight Times, there's an excellent article by Sumiko Tan summarizing this year's Davos. And she said this year's Davos was dominated by three themes, China, artificial intelligence, and business for good. Business, business for good. That means you, can, you, can you run a profitable business and at the same time do good for the environment and for the world? On China, she said that the dichotomy in Davos was, is China the big bad wolf or is China a benign power? Yeah? And I noticed in your written presentation, and I quote here, you said it is not in China's nature to be a missionary or colonizing power. Uh, many Singaporeans share this benign view of China that you hold. But it is not consistent with the facts. Yeah? So I want to challenge you. In Gang Hu's speech, he said during the Yuan Dynasty, China attacked Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Champa, and even invaded Borobudur and Java. Gang Hu also said the Qing emperors extended China's frontier northwards and westwards to the current uh, territorial boundary of China. And when I asked a Vietnamese scholar, what is the Vietnamese view of Chinese history? My Vietnamese friend said, Vietnam was ruled by China for a thousand years. And if you visit Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City today, you will see monuments dedicated to Vietnamese who fought China for liberation. When I asked a Korean scholar for Korean view of Chinese history, this Korean scholar said that China had invaded Korea at least 500 times in its history. So why do you hold this benign view of China? No, uh, if you look at the historical map of China, 
the ex extent of the different dynasties, they wax and wane. And as they <clears throat> wax, they incorporated border regions and sinicized them. And then as they wane, some of those not properly sinicized became independent, but related chopsticks peoples. So their view of China is, of course, very different, say, from uh, countries or tribes or nations living further away. You, any Korean his, history drama would always have some Chinese dynasty as a backdrop. The Vietnamese and the Chinese have a very similar genome, except there's one part in the Vietnamese genome which says emphatically, I am not Chinese. Yeah. So you, you have to distinguish between those who were sometimes Chinese, sometimes non-Chinese, sometimes semi-Chinese, from those who are further away. But ask, ask ourselves, why does every Chinese dynasty seek to extend its borders but stop so that its population remains homogeneous. And that's because when China was unified under Qing, it was very tough. The legalist principle, punishment. So Qing did not survive Qing Shou Huan's son. And when Han took over, he organized the empire on a different basis of Li. But you can only operate Li among Chinese people. You can extend it to non-Chinese people. So the Chinese find it inconvenient to have to incorporate non-Han among them. No, Chinese New Year is around the corner. And all the women in the audience are very stressed because you need to draw banknotes, you need to accumulate your ang pao's, you, you check the envelopes, you got to decide how much to phone to each, you make little quotes on the side. When relatives come, you've got to quickly decide whom to give what. Then you ask your children what they receive. <laughs> For what purpose? For what purpose? It's still the same money. It is to re-establish relationships. But the moment you're outside the non-Han sphere, there's no intelligence in the giving and taking. But among Chinese people, it is profound social signaling. When we talk about those at the border, um, yes, I can understand why they have a different view. Um, but I, I would challenge your statement. <laughs> the Tibetans are not Han. The Uyghurs are not Han. And China has incorporated these territories into their sovereign territory. So you can't say that China doesn't invade and incorporate non-Han people into their nation. Tibet and Xinjiang are two shining examples of the opposite. I'm, I'm not here to, to, to defend the Chinese position. Okay. I mean, uh, <laughs> All right, uh, maybe if, I've said enough. Yeah. I've been naughty enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my wife will surely scold me tonight. But, so let's take questions from you. Because of the limited time, can we take three questions at a time? Um, I, I can't quite see very well. Um, can somebody from IPS help me? Yeah, right, right at the back. I think Dr. Gabe gave me in. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. Keep it short, please. We don't have much time. Okay. Thank you. Um, my question, which I think dovetails into the last debate, 
Can you speak louder? We can't hear you from here. It's about the... Um, I, I want to ask the panel about how they see the importance of soft power in this increasingly multipolar world. Okay. Um, in okay. particular, how China has succeeded or not succeeded in exercising soft okay. power. Okay. And also Singapore, how we can okay. improve. Thank I ask this because the three yeah. uh, people on stage are to me icons of um, the mastery of soft power in Singapore. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Min. Um, another question, please. Is there somebody else who wanted to ask a question? Chandra uh, Das, can you ask an intelligent question, please? <laughs> somebody else? Yes, please. Yes, I, yes? I think uh, a theme of uh, both uh, the panelists uh, was how, you know, there is now a desire to go back to look at Chinese history to give us a sense of what kind of a power China would be. Um, one of the things about Chinese history was that the adversaries it faced were numerically quite small relative to the size of China itself, and that allowed it to develop a certain kind of foreign policy uh, i.e. the tributary system. So what's your, going, what's, what's your question? Yeah, going forward, countries like the US, even if they're half the size of the Chinese economy, they are still very big. So can history, can China maybe make some missteps or have a different sort of a trajectory? Or could, it, could its past actually lead it to, you know, do to some missteps, like for instance, being a bit tone deaf, like in the South China Sea okay. conflict. Right, thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Anybody? Yeah, please. We're living in interesting times, witnessing the US and China tension. Um, my question is, how would you advise someone like um, Trump? in this interesting time? Oh dear. <laughs> um, I, uh, I don't think any of us dare to advise President Trump. <laughs> but why, why don't I ask George to go first? George, uh, <laughs> the, the three questions, uh, soft power, what advice for President Trump and learning from history? I think for China, it's very important to be immersed in this history because it's impossible for the Chinese to do anything without reference back to their own history. So they are very much imprisoned by their own historical precedents and models. Even in Communist China, as Wang Gengwu said, if you look at the Communist Party, well, it's just a revival of the old Mandarin name, but using Western terms and Western concepts. And, uh, and it's not just historical China, it's understanding the China of today. When Lee Kuan Yew was a student in England, he took part in labor politics, and he had deep knowledge of the British establishment, and that enabled him to secure their support when he was fighting the left in Singapore. And when we were about to leave Malaysia, he knew that the British would stop it, so he kept it a secret from the British. Then in 1968, he decided better learn more about the Americans, so he actually took a term off. He took time off to spend a term in Harvard 
where he met men like Henry Kissinger. Because at that time, if we didn't understand the US deeply, we would not make the right decisions. In the same way, looking ahead, I think we have to immerse ourselves in China much more in order to understand its nature. China statecraft may be defensive in character generally, but it's also capable, entirely capable of bad behavior. I was foreign minister for seven years and uh, learned from, from, from learned many lessons. Uh, so the more we understand China, the more useful we are, not only to China, but also to ASEAN and to the US. And China has got to also adapt itself to countries like Singapore and to the others. And I watched with great interest this uh, improving relationship between China and the Vatican. To me, it's very important because there is, uh, in the West, a growing anti-China mood. Uh, but the Chinese knew in 2013 or 14, when both Xi Jinping and uh, the Pope were in America, the Pope had headlines every day. Xi Jinping was reduced to a footnote. So the Chinese know that the church is important in Western civilization, and they're building up their knowledge of the church in the understanding of Western civilization. And this little dance between them, and recently, for the first time in history, all Chinese bishops are in communion with Rome. And for the first time, two Chinese bishops attended a synod in Rome. I think this will eventually, if it's properly handled, lead to diplomatic relations, and may well soften the image of China in the Western world. Uh, as for President Trump, uh, it's way beyond my pay grade. Gang <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to give any advice to President Trump. I have a feeling that uh, none of his advisors get very far with him anyway. <laughs> um, the question about soft power is a particularly intriguing one. Of course, the definition of soft power came from the West, from the United States, Joseph Nye, and uh, his interpretation of soft power is something, I think, not really very clear to the Chinese. I don't think they fully understand what jo Joseph Nye was talking about. I'm not even sure sometimes whether the Americans understand what soft power is about. But what is true is that there is a definition of soft power going around the world which is usually demonstrated through the kind of attractive lifestyle, popular entertainment, and the kind of cultural uh, expressions which the West generally, and Americans particularly, have been representing to the world. And by, by that definition, the Chinese don't have the same thing. Obviously, they don't. Whatever the Chinese represent will be very different. And if you are enamored of the soft power that Joseph Nye defines, well, that makes you, in fact, very unwilling to accept anything that the Chinese have to offer. And when the Chinese imitate the West and offer something like it, it doesn't sound really genuine. Now, that's the, the particular weakness of this concept of soft power. But if you take the Chinese point of view, when they set up all these Confucius Institutes and so on, what did they have in mind? I'm not sure that um, they think of Confucius as all that soft. Confucius was a terribly demanding sort of guy. He demanded very high standards of behavior, standards of morality, 
and, uh, and insisted on being a, a, a kind of gentleman at all costs, uh, very demanding things which I wouldn't describe as soft. They expect you to be highly disciplined, self-disciplined, to be a proper Confucian. And I'm not sure that anybody would be attracted by that. That's, uh, that's hard, sounds like hard work. And uh, so I think that's not what it is about. To the Chinese, what they have to offer is, is essentially the idea that they are very different from the Joseph Nye's definition of soft power. And they're trying to offer something to do, attract people to, to learn about China through the language, to the literature, to the art, and so on. But what they put, put out is all so different from what the Americans represent. So if you define soft power in the Joseph Nye sense, then China has no soft power. Not, not, it, it can't match the, what the Americans have to offer. But when it comes to what the Chinese understand by soft power, they mean by soft power what is not hard power. Hard power means military power, political influence, political pressure, that's hard power. Anything other than that, including trading, peaceful commercial relationships, entrepreneurial uh, competition and so on, they regard that as something to do with soft power. Now, I'm not sure people understand that, and it seems to me quite a difficult way to overcome the um, different understanding. I, I, I think, I, sorry, I don't agree with that, Gangu. I think China has soft power. And this was brilliantly put on display at the opening of the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. It was so beautifully curated. It showed the world that China has made so many contributions to, to civilization. And I would say, even in the contemporary world, um, people are attracted to China because they want to learn the language, they want to understand the culture. George will say, we, all of us need to do that. They are interested in uh, Chinese literature, they are interested in um, Chinese uh, food. Every, the whole world loves Chinese cuisine. Um, when Chinese sports person uh, win major tournament like Li Nan did, Australian Open, this added to China's soft power. So I think that China has soft power, and it's, I think it intends to compete with America, just, not just in hard power, but also in soft power. Can, can I, I, yeah, I, please. Say, I say, Tommy, that uh, that understanding is because you are not totally sold on the American idea of soft power. If you're open-minded about that, you can find soft power in China. Yes. What I'm talking about is that whole new generations of people around the world are sold on the American idea of soft power. That particular kind of soft power, the Chinese yeah. do not have. Okay. That's, that's really what okay. I'm trying to say. Uh, George, please, no, George. I, I think I agree with Gengwu that we have to look at China in its own terms and not against Western intellectual categories. I mean, the Chinese philosophic tradition, the yin and yang, wen, wu, wen, wu, even Wu, which we associate with war or weapons, it is really the stopping of weapons in the character. So the entire philosophical tradition is if you have to fight, you have to fight. But if you fight without thinking through, you're harming yourself. So everything is about how to avoid having to fight. Ibrit Sun Tzu, the Supreme Commander achieves his objective without having to fight. Yes. And I think that's what China is trying to do. 
So when you face a problem with China, they're very slow to threaten militarily. They will use rhetoric. They know all the acupuncture points. Twitter, you here, Twitter, there. Before you know, you're feeling some neuralgia. Then they prescribe bitter herbs. Then they look at you again, and then they tell, they adjust the treatment. They will try to avoid surgery at all costs. Now, do you call that soft power or hard power? Well, that's Chinese power. <laughs> Thank you, George. Uh, let's take three more questions, I think. Then we have to conclude this session. Three more questions, please. Um, Hi, Paul. Yes. Oh. Uh, yes. Yes. <coughs> Thanks very much uh, for the talk. My name is Lian. Question to uh, Mr. Yeo and uh, Professor Wang. I think there's been a strong historical structural view of, of how China and the US operate. But if you look at what Professor Tommy said, I think given how fast and how rapidly the world is changing, do you really feel and believe that the historical view is truly relevant in extrapolating how these two countries operate? China's history is so long, there are so many data points that you can draw whatever arc or whatever trajectory you want, whether it is one that is aggressive and assertive or one that is self-effacing and stays within its borders. So my point yeah. is really, um, yeah. is history really a good guide? Okay, thank you. You shouldn't ask this question when there's a historian on the panel. <laughs> Is history really a good guy? Okay, second question, please. Hey. Second question, yeah, please, uh, Yuan, Dr. Uh, thank Borugesu. you, Prof. Yuan Regesu. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for this discussion. Speak louder, please. Louder, okay. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask this question to the panel. This is a recent podcast by Professor Kishore Mabubani yeah. on China and uh, America's myopic view of China's rise. It's just two points, um, just to mention from that. He says to address the psychological block that the Americans and Westerners have, they should stop thinking of China's government as being led by the Chinese I think Communist sorry, Party. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. We are familiar with Kishore's view. Yeah. So can so the you question is, put forward your, your question? Yeah. What's your question? So he has said that it is inevitable that the IMF will move its headquarters to China and the Chinese currency will become the primary international reserve currency in the coming decades. What does the panel think? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One more question, please. Uh, I'm actually right over here, on your yeah. left. Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, good morning. Uh, my question is about what PM Lee actually mentioned at the end of the ASEAN summit. Uh, he said that there may come a day, quite soon, where ASEAN will have to choose between the US or the China. And I, I think going by the science, it seems quite soon, and how, how do you think uh, ASEAN would fare? How do you think it would be um, you know, uh, separated apart by this having to take sides between the two superpowers? Thank you. Um, George? Yes. Uh, okay. So let, let, let's say there are three questions. Huh? We, we have difficulty hearing you from up here. Yeah. We because can't of quite the acoustics. The three questions I think are one, is, is history really a good guide, right? Um, second question is, quoting from Kishore Mabubani, does the United States understand China? I think the answer is probably no. And third, a question on ASEAN which I didn't understand. George, can you go first? Um, there's a question on the IMF 
yes. and China becoming the world's uh, reserve currency. I don't think China wants to be the world's reserve currency. I don't think it wants to take on that responsibility. I don't think China will ever fully open up its capital market because its preoccupation is always domestic. If you open up your capital markets to the world, you will allow London and New York to interfere in your own economy. And the history of China is they much rather be in control of their own essential uh, physiological systems, and finance is one of them. They are now working towards creating two separate pools of RMB, one within China, which is the big one, and one outside China, which can be freely transacted outside China. And in between, they have portals which will regulate the relationship between the two pools. There are arbitrage opportunities, but if there's a crisis, they will shut all these portals in order to protect the tranquility of the internal ocean. So I don't think China has any wish uh, to, to be the world's reserve currency, although inevitably it will become a major reserve currency for many countries. Thank you, George. Uh, Gangu, is history a good guide? <laughs> Never ask a history question from a history professor. Um, I must say that uh, History is very often what we call a question of timing. What you can do at some points of history, you cannot do at other points of history. Let's put it simply like that. For example, um, when the Chinese, uh, in fact, taking your example of the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, when the Chinese could move to the Uyghur and Tibetan territories, it actually wasn't done by the Chinese. The Chinese were actually pressed very hard to keep their lives together in southern China, southern and central China mainly, while the people who brought Tibet into the realm, as it were, were the Mongols. The Mongols really drew Tibetans in, and they did it in a very strange and interesting way. One of the ways they did it was by becoming Lamas Buddhists themselves. I mean, and in fact, the uh, Tibetans did the Mongols a great favor, turned them from very barbaric, tough, warriors into very nice, peaceable people as the Mongols are today. And that's because of Lamaist Buddhism. So I'm not sure who won, who, who took over who. But that's where Tibet came into the Chinese realm of that, at that time. And Uyghurs, uh, rather similar position. The Manchus were the ones who went there. Emperor Qianlong, uh, right in the height of Manchu power, expanded there, partly because he was trying to control the Mongols who were rebellious against him in the, in the, in the Xinjiang area. And of course, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the threat of, uh, of uh, the Muslim forces at that time uh, to prevent Tianlong from doing that uh, led him to take over the Turkestan itself. And from that m moment onwards, the Uyghurs became part of the Qing Empire. Now, as I said, timing is what it is. Where did the Chinese come in? The Chinese came in because they inherited the Qing Empire as the Republic of China in 1911. And when they inherited that, the, the whole world at that time, the international law of that time, allowed China to take over the borders of what was the, the Qing Empire. That became the borders of the new Republic of China. And that was internationally acknowledged. So there were no questions of rights and wrongs in that issue. It was a kind of inheritance. That's why I say history is a matter of timing. I'll give you another example of, uh, of uh, how fortunate you can be. In the 19th century, 
the, or in fact go earlier in the some 16th, 17th century onwards, the Spanish could do what they like to the Latin, what we call Latin America today. And in the 19th century, the Americans could do what they like on the North American continent. They took over all that from these indigenous people. You might say, very sorry for the Amerindians, but they had nobody to stop them. Nobody, no international law was quoted to say, you cannot do that. You cannot do this to the poor Indians in, in, in America, North America. So the timing is very important. If you did that at the right time, you can get away with it. You do it today, you can't. Okay. Um, we have um, about three minutes left. So what I'd like to do is invite each of the two panelists, um, Joshua first. In about two minutes, can you sum up what is your most important message to the conference this morning? George. I'm concerned about ASEAN. I think uh, ASEAN is very important to Singapore. Uh, Singapore is the most ASEANized country among the 10 members. All the citizens have large communities here. Uh, a strong ASEAN gives us much more room for maneuver and buffers us against big power rivalry. It's important that Indonesia uh, takes the lead. I had a long conversation with Mati last night on this. Because without Indonesia taking the lead, it's very difficult for ASEAN to coalesce a common position. In my years as trade minister and foreign minister, I always made it a point of principle to align Singapore's interests with that of Indonesia's, harmonize our positions, and then together we can do much to influence all of ASEAN. And I hope that in the coming years, we will spend much more time developing our relations with Indonesia. The second point is more important, which is ourselves, and how we see ourselves. How do we see, what does it mean to be a Singaporean? When I was a member of parliament, I always gave more or less the same speech, handing out new ICs to new citizens. And I say, wherever you come from, those links are important to us. Do not cut off your links to China, to Indonesia, to Myanmar or Thailand. These are all assets to us. There's only one requirement to be a Singaporean, which must be that you open your heart in your mind to others. You must be bigger than what you were to become Singaporean. When recently President Halima and President Putin broke the ground for a Russian Orthodox Church in Singapore, many Singaporeans were not aware of this. But I met a Russian businessman who was with President Putin on his trip to Asia. He said for days afterwards, Putin could not stop talking about it. Because to have a Russian Orthodox Church in Singapore, complete with golden domes reflecting the sunlight, it meant that in our heart is Russia. And that mattered to him. And that must be how we are seen by others. That must be how we see ourselves. Um, I would just point out that um, th this Russian Orthodox Church in Singapore, which is being built, like many other good things, are the legacy of George Hill. So let's give him a wrong upon. Kangu, you are the wisest man. Could you just in one minute <laughs> give, give us a word of wisdom? I, 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 I have to say, if you give me one minute, I have to say ASEAN, ASEAN, ASEAN. Okay. <laughs> that, that boils down to the door. I think, All right. uh, 
no question in my mind <laughs> that the most remarkable story is the coming together of these miscellaneous states of the area we call Southeast Asia to be able to work together as ASEAN is one of the most remarkable stories of our time. And I hope they can continue because if they continue, they can make a difference to peace and prosperity in our whole region. Join me in thanking the two speakers. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, George. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, good, good